This episode is all about space. Recently, ASPE hosted international military, industry and academic experts for a series of events focused on space and national security. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. In this special, we're delighted to be joined by guests Jeffrey Becker, Janice Starzik, Dr. Namrata Goswami, and Dr. Kevin Polpetta for conversations on this critical domain. First up, Dr. Malcolm Davis speaks to Dr. Namrata Goswami and Dr. Kevin Polpetta about China's space capabilities and ambitions in space. They discuss China's space industry, China's lunar program, and the potential for China to accelerate its lunar plans. Hi, it's Dr. Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, I'm joined today by two really excellent space commentators, Dr. Namrata Goswami, a key thinker on space policy and space security with a focus on China, and Dr. Kevin Polpetter, who is also a key thinker and has a focus on China. So naturally, the topic we're choosing to talk about today is China's space ambitions. So I will get Dr. Goswami uh, Namrata to kick off with some thoughts on where she sees China going in space. Sure. Thank you, uh, Malcolm, for having us uh, today. So if you think about China's space program, uh, I like to put it within China's grand strategic thinking. So within that contextualization, there are three important ways to look at it. One is that from a grand strategic perspective, China views space capability as a very critical component of their access strategy to space. So building space command and control is key in terms of building that access. Second, when you think about China's space uh, strategy, they're looking at space from becoming the lead actor within a particular context of 2049, which is the 100th year anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And within that context, what China aspires is to build the rules of the road as to how space is regulated and what kind of reforms China can actually bring about in terms of leadership. And finally, what China is really concentrated on in terms of building influence through its grand strategic thinking in space is to raise the level of the space narrative from the current thinking of satellite communication, low Earth orbit, to actually moving space into the cislunar conversation of building permanent presence, for example, on the moon by 2036, going out to Mars, and even investing in key technological concepts like space-based solar power and asteroid mining. Kevin, your focus has often been on the military and defence aspects of space. Where do you think China's um, defence and military focus is going to be in space in coming years? I think they're going to continue to build out what they have now. You know, China now has the second largest number of satellites in orbit. Um, they have a uh, global 24-hour all-weather remote sensing system. They have a global satellite navigation system. They're building new launchers. So I think the key now for China, at least in the space side, is to build that out, become more global, uh, to have it become more accurate, more capable. But what we also need to consider is that China also has what appears to be 
an extensive counter space program. And here they have deployed some direct ascent ASAT weapons, uh, missiles that can shoot down satellites. They've developed uh, directed energy weapons like lasers. But I think what we're going to see is probably an expansion of that capability. So really what we're seeing then is China's desire to achieve in a conflict space superiority, which is really defined as the ability to freely use space and tonight to deny that ability to others. So I think that's really where they're going. Okay, now they've got a space station up, which they're in the, almost at the point of completion, uh, Tiangong. Uh, they've just sent another mission up, I think at Shenzhou 17. Where do they take that? Because it's a relatively small space station. Do they follow a similar process like the American said with Skylab going to the International Space Station? Or do they really see themselves um, set firmly focused on the moon? Uh, so right now, I think they're they're looking at, at the Tiangong Space Station to have a service life of about 10 years. So we're looking maybe past 2030. But then once you get past 2030, then you start really looking at, at lunar exploration. And, and um, they're looking at more maybe the 2035 time frame for maybe putting boots on the ground, if you would, uh, on the moon. Now, that's not nothing official has been, you know, they haven't stated that as official goal. But if you look at things like the Russia, China-Russia Lunar Cooperation Agreement, that's really the timeline that they're looking at. So I think China is looking at uh, low Earth orbit right now, but, you know, keeping their sights on the moon for right now. Mm. And Namrata, um, one of the key aspects of going to the moon for the Chinese was their Long March 9 heavy rocket. They've just made a significant change to that rocket. Do you want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, sure. So Wu Wering, uh, just who is the uh, chief designer of China's lunar program, uh, gave an interview just uh, this week in which he pointed out that the main reason that they have made this official decision to turn their heavy lift Long March 9 rocket that is able to take about 140 metric tons to low Earth orbit uh, reusable is because of all these lunar missions. So some of the lunar missions that China is focused on is a 2024 mission uh, that is the Chang'e 6 uh, to the uh, lunar South Pole to bring back about two kilograms of lunar uh, regolith to study it. Then they have a Chang'e 7 mission that wants to survey the South Pole of the Moon. And then the Chang'e 8 mission, which is a critical mission, is going to launch in 2028. And that mission is about 3D printing, in-situ resource utilization towards building their research base, right? So all these missions are dependent on heavy lift and the Long March 9. So that's the idea of making it reusable so that they can bring down the cost of launch. And then finally, I would say that if you think about their lunar program, as Kevin said, they haven't made an official announcement that they're going to send uh, Taikonauts, which is Chinese astronauts, to the lunar surface. But then recently they said that they would attempt at a very unofficial level that they would attempt such a mission at the by the end of this decade, but that's not their goal. Their goal is officially permanent presence on the lunar surface, and they argue that sending humans and bringing them back does not build that capacity. So they're focused on robotic mission capability, and the Long March 9 is going to play a critical role in that. Mm, having said that, you know we're all watching Artemis 1, which is a uncrewed um, Orion spacecraft orbiting in distant lunar retrograde orbit. The Artemis project is planned out over the course of this decade with uh, Artemis 3 potentially for 2025 or 2026. It's potentially could be pushed back depending on uh, political and economic factors going in the US. Do you think it's possible that if Artemis 3 is pushed back and delayed significantly that the Chinese could be tempted to accelerate their lunar plans to effectively get to the moon before the Americans? 
That's a great question because if you look at their articulation, they have put out these timelines in 2002 and continued to reiterate this timeline. So they already have very focused missions. And I haven't seen them change uh, lunar mission timelines as yet. As despite the fact that when Artemis was announced in 2017 and then officially announced in 2019 through the preambles, I haven't seen that kind of change of uh, deadlines because I think the Chinese are calculating that the Americans might not meet the timelines they, they have set, right? Now, having said that, one interesting development I have seen is that they have changed the timeline for one of their experiments with regard to space-based solar power. The uh, kilowatt beaming of power from low Earth orbit from 2030 to 2028. The China Academy of Space Technology and the China National Space Administration just gave out a timeline. So uh, if we do have a successful Artemis 3, I don't see China changing its timelines, but we don't know. Uh, we see them changing some timelines with space with solar power, so it will depend on whether they have the cap capability to do it. It really will matter if they're able to actually go about doing that. If I could add one thing uh, on there, Malcolm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Namrat. I, I would say that uh, if China had wanted to go to the moon earlier, I think they have that capability right now. They could have done it with a number of Long March 5 launches. What we often forget sometimes is that even China is sometimes dictated by budgets. And what we've seen on the human spaceflight side is, is a very sort of slow, progressive human spaceflight program. It's not like the Apollo program, which was, which was a crash program. So I think there is a very much a recognition that, that the budgets are quite extensive for that. There is competition within the space program as well as nationally for budgets. I think they're, they're being deliberate about this for a reason. And I would expect that, you know, they, they'd want to get that long March 9 that Namrata talked about a finish before they'd want to go. But if they want to do it, they could do it now if they wanted. So how does commercial space play into this? Uh, President Xi uh, essentially brought in new rules that allowed commercial space companies to emerge. There's a lot of them, most of them very small, but obviously they are part of the uh, Chinese Communist Party structure. How do they play into this? So yeah, so that's a good question. So it's it's sort of uh, it's sort of a mixed bag right now. Uh, you know, 2014, China had essentially zero uh, commercial space companies. Uh, now they have probably more than 200. So there was some supportive uh, documents issued in 2014, which sort of opened up the floodgates for funding to China's commercial space industry. On the other hand, though, we've seen in the past couple of years that Xi Jinping has shown that uh, actually he's actually more supportive of the state-owned sector. And so 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 what I think what we're we're going to see is that for the big programs, um, it, they are still going to be state-led. So, for example, I, I don't think we're going to see a SpaceX taking over launch for China's human spaceflight program. But I think what they are trying to leverage is, especially at a component level, trying to get that innovation. We've also seen uh, that China Man Space Agency has actually uh, uh, said that they are open to having commercial resupply. Now, that's probably a, a long ways off. But I think what we're going to see is because China's space program is considered a strategic industry, they don't want to give that up entirely to, to the private sector. Uh, so we're going to see them still leading the way, but maybe uh, – Commercial companies playing more of a niche role in medium or low-level launch, maybe space tourism, those sorts of things. And Namrata, if you were to look forward in the next 10 years, what would you see as the big achievement for China in space? Is it regular access to space on reusable launch vehicles? Is it space-based solar power? Is it lunar missions? What do you think? 
I think space-based solar power and lunar missions. And I think I say that because uh, recently the Tiangong uh, Space Station designer uh, announced officially that they are going to test a space-based solar power experiments on the Tiangong. And they would also demonstrate uh, automated assembly of the satellite there. So, And they plan to do it in the next two years. So in the next 10 years, that means that their goal to achieve that kilowatt level power beaming, which is the critical component for space-based solar power, will be achieved as far as what I can see in terms of building towards the capacity. And so that's number one. If they achieve that, that will have a huge impact on Earth and all of us who are actually looking to space-based solar power, right? The second big achievement for China would be uh, in the next 10 years, which is 2032, if they're able to achieve their mission of actually surveying the South Pole of the Moon, as well as returning samples from the South Pole of the Moon. That has not been done as yet. So if they achieve that, as they say they want to, that's going to be a huge impact. And I say this because as I saw how countries in the Asia-Pacific viewed China's Chang'e 4 mission, uh, I think it got lost in the United States that those countries were absolutely astounded that China was the first Asian country to land on the far side, the first country to land a robotic probe on the far side, and then actually to autonomously bring back samples from the near side as well. So if they're able to achieve the goals that they have set of 3D printing, in-situ resource utilization in the moon, that's going to be a huge program that's going to affect the narrative and the technology capacity as well. And Kevin? I focus more on the military side, and so uh, let me give maybe a couple outlying examples. But but just generally, I think what I'm looking at is that as China approaches the world-class level or cutting edge of, of space technologies, they can no longer rely on other countries for assistance. They're going to have to rely on themselves. So any sort of foreign technology that they're getting would be great, but they're going to have to sooner or later rely on their own wits to advance in space technology. So it'll be interesting to see how China will be able to to progress once they get up to that world-class level. A couple of things I'm looking at is uh, I think will be really interesting is if they really do develop an orbital bombardment system technology. They tested it uh, uh, last year. Um, Placing weapons in space would be maybe a a game changer for something that the U.S. would have to think about. Um, It would pose the U.S. homeland at risk. It would pose uh, a risk to uh, Australia ability to overcome missile defenses. Uh, if China were to put a nuclear weapon on on board one of those uh, satellites, that would violate the Outer Space Treaty. So lots of interesting things that could arise with the development of that kind of system. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you, Namrata. That was a great conversation. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Up next, Beck Shrimpton speaks to Virgin Orbit's Janice Starzik and Brett Perry about the history of Virgin Orbit and the company's ambitions. They discuss opportunities for government and industry collaboration on space, including in the area of national security and defence, and how Virgin Orbit is supporting spacefaring nations. We are here today on the ASPE podcast with two friends from Virgin Orbit, Brett Perry and Janice Starzik. Janice is a star by name, star by nature, my friend. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm uh, so pleased that we've got got you in Australia and uh, a chance to have a chat today about Virgin Orbit. Uh, and Brett, you've been a part of the conversations with uh, with Dennis and I as long as we've been talking about this very exciting uh, and very different, very unique 
capability. But over to you, Brett and Janice. Can you tell us a little bit, please, about the Virgin Orbit capability? What's, what's the the origin story? If you like, why, why did Virgin Orbit uh, come up with this idea, and how did you commercialize and, and become a fully operable company? First of all, I have to say thank you for bringing us here. I'm thrilled to finally be in Australia talking about launch and and uh, bringing Virgin Orbit and, and Launcher One to uh, Australian shores. Virgin Orbit started as its own company back in 2017, but has really been an idea um, from, from years before that. So Virgin Galactic started as the first space company for Richard Branson's Virgin Group, uh, focused more on uh, launching people to space and, and, and the, the tourism and scientific aspect of, of suborbital travel. And while they were developing that, there was the thought of, okay, we've got this air-based launch capability. How do we evolve it? How do we do more with it than we initially thought? And doing an orbital rocket from an aircraft seemed like a natural progression, um, you know, sort of started as a back of the factory idea and, and evolved into its own entity in 2017. So now we have 747 owned by the company and adapted for launch. This was a former Virgin Atlantic 747, completely now reused and uh, reusable. So it is uh, a great opportunity to provide a environmental and adaptable and flexible launch system. Uh, we have a two-stage rocket that launches from the wing of that aircraft and takes three to 500 kilograms to low Earth orbit. So this is a, a brand new capability. It's, we've sort of gone about this the hardest way you could possibly do it. Uh, but we, now that we're, we're operational, we're proud to say that. And we are bringing this rocket to, you know, we started our first four launches in California. So we have our, our factory based in Long Beach, California, and our initial launch site was out of Mojave. And our next launch, the fifth launch for the company, is going to be out of Cornwall in the UK. So this is a, a partnership that started several years back and is bringing a uh, launch to the UK for the first time. First launch really from Europe uh, to orbit and should be happening within, within the next couple of weeks. But it is a great model for how we can turn around and bring this capability to Australia. Definitely. It's it's a really exciting time to be down here back. It's, as Janice described, we've done four launch, successful launches a day, several dozen satellites in orbit, it's doing good for science, commercial entities, and, and defense. But we've root, so we've proven the system out, we've proven the technology. Now we're in the phase where we're demonstrating the vision, so the mobility, the idea of bringing our system and enabling spacefaring nations. And that's what's going on right now in Cornwall. And what's great is that's going to be a blueprint for how we work, not only in Australia, but with other countries around the world. Yeah, I think that's a particularly important part of your story. It's not just about the fact that you you did a really unusual thing in putting the you know a rocket under the wing of an aircraft as a way of of achieving orbit, but you know it's it's been part of your the company's DNA to help other nations become more spacefaring, and this is really opening up launch to to countries that may have no other option to get there so it's uh it's incredibly interesting it's uh it seems to be part of the the journey of of where commercial space is going more broadly in terms of a, a democratization if you like or at least just that increasing access to space for a number of players can we go in a little bit more detail as to characteristics 
of this capability that make it peculiarly good for a national security and defence perspective. And and by that I mean often you call this a um, an enabler of responsive space. Can you talk a little bit about how this is uh, a responsive space capability and how that works? So an air launch capability is very unique in its ability to provide a, a flexible, unwarned, a unpredicted system that can put a, a satellite into just about any orbit and in a way that your adversary may not be able to track or predict or understand what you're doing. So not only can we put a satellite into just about any trajectory to hit a specific space to view, a, a if you're looking at something in orbit, if you are replacing a specific asset in a current in a specific plane, we're able to do that in a targeted way with this vehicle because of the flexibility it has to launch in different directions. Also, when you're working with air launch, you have a resilience to weather, uh, to range availability, to a lot of assets that are very much uh, constraint to ground-based launch systems. So uh, in our uh, launch earlier this year, in January of 2022, uh, we had a launch that was aptly called Above the Clouds. It was named prior to the actual launch. This launch occurred on a day where there was a 10,000-foot cloud deck in the launch zone. Now, anyone who's been in the launch business for a long time would know that basically will scrub any other launch system. Uh, you cannot fly through that level of clouds. Uh, there's too much danger to the rocket. When you have an air launch system, you can fly above them and you can get out of the way of the weather and provide that responsive and rapid capability despite the, the circumstances. So to build off of what Janice was describing, and it, I mean, as she explained, air launch is the, the most uh, efficient way to achieve responsive space. But what's great about air launch as well is that systems like ours are inherently allied by design in the sense that when we look at responsive space with a mobile system such as ours, where we bring Cape Canaveral in a box and can sit up at any airport that can accommodate at 747, that provides an opportunity for us to not only launch out of uh, sites in the U.S., but sites within allies as well. And so what we're doing is we're essentially bringing launch, which has traditionally been an incredibly complicated and, and complex uh, and expensive. Uh, an expensive activity. We're, we're changing it so that we have with our system that's interoperable and mobile and which allows different allies to do essentially joint missions, so to speak, to really try to redefine what it means to have um, uh, resilient uh, activities in the space domain. And to be, I mean, to, to really bring out the, uh, you know, the full extent, I guess, of what this capability represents and the opportunity that it brings, you, you don't just bring launch in a box, if you like, but you, you know, depending on the nature of your partnership with each particular country, um, there are economic, industrial, there are other advantages to how this can play out. Can you talk a little bit more to, to the, that, I guess, the industrial and the economic angles? So space, in essence, is a is a, a tremendously inspirational industry, capability, dream, you know, that affects just about every level of society. Now, space for most countries is something that is in the movies or in, you know, thought about at different levels without real consideration of this is something I could do. 
Um, even in the U.S., it's the case unless you're in one of the you know more concentrated space areas. Uh, there's a few cities that that you know stand out here. What a spaceport can bring is that sense of reality of space to a community. Um, we have seen a tremendous impact in our activities in Cornwall on how bringing that spaceport to the UK, to a specific part of the UK that was really looking for how to bring high-tech industry into a region that was lacking for opportunities and seen tremendous success. We've seen about 50 different companies come to the area that hadn't been there before. We've seen uh, multiple tenants coming to the spaceport to use those facilities and make use of the activities that are going on there. And that's creating opportunity. It's creating a sense of how this is going to impact what kids want to study, what they want to be. Uh, we've hit about 10,000 students directly through Spaceport Cornwall. So Virgin Orbit is touching uh, just about every student in that region. And they are creating opportunities around that. So uh, Cornwall is going to have its first satellite coming up in the, in the next year or so that all stems from what they can do with the catalyzing aspect of a spaceport. To reiterate what Janice just described, it's, it's a, it catalyzes the entire space economy for, for the region. It's not only launched where we have partners that are helping us build our ground support equipment, but through a spaceport, there's activities with polling and satellite companies that in turn is going to drive companies further upstream, but even then more downstream where there's a lot of value. And so, for instance, in Spaceport Cornwall, uh, the UK government projects over the next several years that the gross value added to the economy is going to be on the order of 450 million pounds. And so it really exemplifies how launch and uh, enabled by a mobile capabilities that we, that we provide has the potential to really transform certain regions and bring them, uh, demonstrate that, that leadership. I would also say launch is an enabler for space. You know, we're there for transportation. So we're not creating the capabilities that our customers are creating. We're enabling those capabilities to thrive. That said, launch is awesome. It's exciting. It's a big fire and a loud boom. And it's what attracts the most attention and uh, excitement and investment uh, to that side of the industry. So having a space base in your country and region or state or you know anything that is closer to how you operate changes the way you approach space in general. Yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, here we are. Virgin Orbit has announced that it, it is working with uh, Wagner Corporation and uh, in Toowoomba. We may be seeing our first orbital launch, certainly from uh, an air launch system. Very exciting for the country. I personally have been, from a national security perspective, always seeing that access to space is enormously important for any nation. But um, I have seen as well that you talked about it being a catalyst for the for the value chain or the, the space economy more broadly anyway. I think it's such an exciting opportunity. Uh, you've picked a really interesting place in Toowoomba where there is already a you know an aerospace and a defence 
precinct, if you like, being being established. So it looks like it's got all the potential to play out the way that, that you're talking about. Why don't you tell us now to, to finish up, what are the plans for, for Australia? What's your timeline and when's that launch party going to be, Janice and Brett? <laughs> <laughs> we are so thrilled to be working with Wagner Corporation and bring uh, Launcher One to Toowoomba Well Camp Airport. Uh, it is a perfect location for us. When you look at it logistically, having that site in Queensland on the East Coast gives us a tremendous amount of access. We can hit almost any orbital location from that launch site, which just makes it uh, the most useful of, of sites within Australia for us. That airport and the vision that Wagner Corporation has for it fits very well into this concept of what a spaceport could bring. Um, yes, they have an aerospace goal. They want to build this aerospace park and a spaceport will create uh, just a tremendous amount of opportunity to expand that and to create new opportunities for companies in Australia and in Queensland. So we're incredibly excited because when we look at the Australian space domain or the space industry, there's all the right ingredients are there. The startup companies that have been really outstanding and showing how entrepreneurs are taking what's been done with small satellite technology and bringing that. So there's a very strong commercial demand for that launch capability. But what's also great is when you look at the stand-up of the space agency and you look at the stand-up space command, the ingredients for collaboration with the government and the civil and defense domains are there. And so we see, we're incredibly excited for this first launch. This is only the beginning. We, I mean, we have a future plan with, I mean, dozens of, of launches per year, eventually from Toowoomba and having a, and eventually having a, a 747. <laughs> yeah, several launches per year, uh, several launches per year from Toowoomba with uh, the Cosmic Girl sister based here in Australia. So our plans right now, we're working towards our inaugural launch in 2024. We think that that's a realistic time frame to get through the regulatory barriers to get that first launch licensed. We need licenses in the U.S. as well as in Australia, working through the export side of that. And what we want to do for this first launch is, is just prove out the capability, show it, and, and build on it from there. So the first launch, you know, will be a model of, of getting this done and getting through all of the hoops. And we will figure out how that gets operated moving forward from the amount of infrastructure and opportunity that we see moving forward. So that first launch could be fly everything in, launch and leave, or that first launch could be as Australian as we can make it. Well, I think you have a vision that many in Australia share. You would have heard that being with us for our for our Aspie Space event uh, today, and thank you for that too. But yeah, there's there's a lot of excitement, uh, energy, and you know, literally investment coming into the into the space industry here. And I think you are stepping in at, at the right time. And um, and I just. I can't wait to see how catalyzing this is and to see this prove out for Australia and our industry and our economies and our national security. Thank you both for joining me today. I Thank really you, appreciate Beck. it. Thank you very much. Finally, Beck is joined by futurist Jeffrey Becker for a conversation on space futures and why futures thinking is an important tool for policymakers. They discuss the role of technology in warfare and the military implications of different technological developments and the importance of the space domain to military strategy. We're here today with Jeff Becker. Jeff, welcome to Australia. 
Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Excellent. First time, I, I understand. First time to Australia. And you've been, been enjoying every moment. Fabulous. That's what we like to hear. Jeff, um, I want to start with what it is that you do. What is a futurist? What makes a good one? And why is futures thinking so important in strategy and defence? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think uh, being a futurist really is about uh, being able to make combinations of connections. Uh, we tend in our society and our civilization to really specialise, that people get smarter and smarter on ever smaller pieces of of things. And I think what a good futurist is able to be broad enough to bring together and connections between two different or three or four different trends and ideas and bring them together, but also understanding the meaning of that change and those connections for whatever organization you're working for. And a futurist can work for a private company, it can work for the military, it can work for the government, uh, but it's being able to synthesize trends, not pull them apart, not put them into smaller and smaller boxes, but to synthesize and to give that bigger picture for decision makers to really make uh, informed decisions about the future. Excellent. We were lucky enough to have you in, involved in uh, in the Space Masterclass with us in Sydney. We t spoke together then about the need to achieve a balance between credibility and imagination. And just coming back to what you've just said, can you talk a little bit about those two ideas, credibility and imagination, and how they work in futures thinking and, and why you need both? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, credibility is just about really understanding what is truly happening. It's about trends. It's about understanding the pace of change. And it's really about having a detailed understanding of how the world works and how it's changing. Um, and that credibility is really important because if you are basing or anchoring your trends and your ideas and your projections in the wrong factors and the wrong ideas, uh, your trends trajectory is going to be way off. But on the other hand, you've got to balance that with the courage and the open-mindedness to step outside of your certitudes and your assumptions and to understand a world that it's going to be fundamentally different from today. The world of tomorrow isn't going to be like today, only more so. It's going to be different in different ways. And that's where inspiration sort of comes in. When you really understand the trends, you really begin to understand your assumptions. And once you understand your assumptions, you can pull one or two of those out. And that's where the inspiration comes in. And again, like I talked about today, the uh, credible is understanding rocketry, for example, in terms of the rocket equation and putting 4% of the mass of the rocket into orbit at any one time. Inspiration is understanding that you can land rockets on their tail, reuse them again, and change the dynamics of the rocket equation and dramatically lower the price of getting to orbit. And it's got us a really long way, hasn't it, being able to uh, to, to think really differently about the math of space, if you like. Uh, I'd like you to uh, tell us a little bit about how your thinking is developing on the role of technology in warfare, something that we look at very closely at ASPI and that I am pursuing through the Sydney Dialogue, of course, and a little bit about the military implications of specific technological developments. Now, it's easy to associate tech with uh, domains, information domains like space and cyber, You've imagined something that I think is really interesting for the Army. Can you talk a little about your multi-domain Dragoon Squad? What is that? How does it work? Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the most difficult things is to get an old mind out of the head of a general. And, and I say that jokingly, but it speaks to the inertia of military forces and it speaks to this uh, accreting of ideas over and over and doing things in a certain way because you've done them for so long. Now, there are advantages of that because in warfare, uh, 
a lot of those lessons are learned the hard way. But also, um, as you as you think about those ideas, sometimes the world changes so fast that uh, some of those fundamental assumptions need to change about how you design a force. And so the whole idea behind the multi-domain Dragoon Squad is given the advancing technologies that we see in communications, laser systems, um, and an array of electric vehicles and all those sorts of things, how lethal, how mobile, how protected, and how aware could you make a small squad-sized unit on a future battlefield? So the real idea there was to from the ground up, add robotics, add AI, add all these advanced technologies and see just how powerful you could make a small squad on the battlefield. And I think the most interesting thing after writing that uh, back in 2017 and seeing the events on the ground in places in uh, Ukraine in particular, uh, this idea of very small, very lethal uh, uh, independent units that are connected by global communications and the ability to deliver very lethal fires from individual small, very mobile units uh, has really shown uh, advantages on the battlefield and, in fact, stopped and blunted the initial assault on places like Kiev and Kharkiv. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to think that um, the lessons that we're learning from Ukraine, there are, there are so many in and around the use of technology, but I, I'd really like to see that we can learn some, I think that you, you hit on four really important characteristics for land forces and, and we have seen in, in Ukraine, you know, mobility, speed, protection, releasing data and um, being networked. They're so incredibly important. So I, I hope that this is not a... Um, a concept that remains on paper yeah. for very long, but that we realize yeah. this. Have you, have you seen it emerging? Uh, well, yeah, I think one of the really interesting things is, you know, that we continue to fight, you know, there's no way that armor is going to keep up with kinetic uh, weapons technology. So why continue to invest in heavy, heavy, heavy armor? Uh, and then, uh, so I think some of that is, again, adding that mobility, understanding that adversary uh, ability to see you and, and uh, track you and then attack you is all dependent on those networked infrastructures uh, and, and the ability to to um, to bring units together in coherent units of action. Uh, and the fact that the Ukrainians have been so well at sort of attacking the ability of the Russians to observe, orient, and act, um, I think that shows the way forward uh, for military forces. Very interesting. Thanks. Now, to bring this back to space, is the space domain in strategy and at the operational level taking a futures perspective how do you think we in australia should be thinking about this domain that's a, a hard question to put on someone who's who's here for the first time and and hearing a lot of different australian perspectives for the first time but you know e- even on what you've heard uh, today and in your time here and, and and given your own experience with us can you can you talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about space and how important it is to us yeah i think the first thing to remember uh, and the, the thing i really try to communicate to people is that space isn't very very distant in fact, space is, it's a geography, it's a place. And oh, by the way, it's closer to where we're sitting right now than Canberra is. Uh, so sure. it's, uh, you know, it's very, very close. And uh, adversaries, this is our front door. And uh, certain adversaries are taking advantage of that front door to observe us, to look at uh, what we're doing. And I think people just being aware that, again, space has a geography, it has a topography, and it has a, a presence that sets it out a little bit from the cyber domain and from the electromagnetic spectrum. Although they are tightly connected and space depends on those, space is a place and it's got it's a geography. And so you have to think about it in terms of geopolitics and using the dynamics of, uh, of the geography of space 
uh, and really fully integrating it into the land domain, the air domain, uh, the maritime domain, and those sorts of things. Um, so if I could leave, you know, kind of our listeners with any sort of idea to think about the geography of space, low Earth orbit is different from medium Earth orbit, is different from geosynchronous orbit, and then cislunar space even farther out. You add in things like the, uh, the Van Allen belts and the radiation belts and, and polar orbits and when you begin to put those things together, you begin to see how it fits into operations on the terrestrial, on the surface of the Earth as well. So again, I, uh, that's how I would sort of characterize that. Because she said something just then that is so interesting. It seems now that you've said it so obviously, but I've never thought about that before. And that is how close space is. Yeah. I had never thought. It is only 100 kilometers above us. And something else that you've said is um, that Leo... So that sort of space only a couple of hundred kilometres, I guess, above where you and I are sitting right now Mm -hmm. is halfway to the moon in terms of the equation, the math and the, uh, you know, the velocity required to to get matter into space. So it's uh, it is all a lot closer than perhaps we are. We think that's a that's a very important thought. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I just want to follow up on that because again, as we were talking about in the conference itself, this reusable rocket technology, um, lowering the cost uh, to getting to orbit uh, uh, is going to make that is going to make it even closer than we imagine now. And the other thing about being halfway to the rest of the solar system is that the solar system is halfway to us. So bringing uh, bringing resources from the moon, from the near-Earth asteroids, and bringing them into low-Earth orbit is uh, much, much easier than bringing stuff from Earth up to, uh, up to uh, into space. So once you jumpstart an industrial economy in space, in cislunar space and that sort of thing, in fact, uh, a recent book by Josh Carlston about uh, space strategy says it's 22 times easier to get something to low Earth orbit from the moon than it is from Earth's surface to low Earth orbit. So speaking of competitive advantages, that's why the moon is so important and beginning to build an industrial infrastructure that pushes uh, manufactured uh, satellites from the moon to low Earth orbit. That will be the real game changer as we move you know, 20, 40 years out into the future. And that's just taking advantage of physics. Exactly. Understanding it and, and making it work. Properly. Pushing materials downhill. Uh-huh, uh-huh, absolutely. I like it. In Australia here, we're looking really hard at long-range strike options. Um, and, of course, we are placing a premium on uh, Indigenous capability that's sustainable, efficient uh, and affordable. You've got a thesis on reusable rocket boosters as part of a theatre strike system. Can you lay that out for us a little bit? So think about a uh, if we don't have to th- uh, throw away first uh, stage boosters or any boosters for that matter, if you, we can reuse them in hours or days, now you have airplane-like uh, sort of responsiveness with the speed and the responsiveness of a missile. So why throw away a rocket body when you have to, when you don't have to? So then you can think about, again, uh, all the kind of warheads, all the kind of things that you could put on top of a missile and then reuse. So now you're, you're, uh, you're continuing to leverage that, uh, that rocket body to, to throw warheads where you need them around the planet. Uh, and again, uh, not throwing away a million to three million dollar, you know, a lot of the, uh, problems or a lot of the criticism with hypersonic weaponry is that you throw the booster away and that makes those weapons so expensive that they're very, very uncommon. When you have a reusable booster and you throw, uh, you know, just simple, uh, you know, tungsten rods on the top uh, with a simple guidance system and you're reusing it, now you're just throwing the cost of the metal. Uh, and uh, again, uh, 
yet now all of a sudden hypersonic strike technology becomes cost effective. Yeah. A nice segue actually into into my my next question, which is uh, in in your view, uh, you know, we're in a very special part of the world here in Australia. Of course, it's interesting geopolitically, it's interesting um, economically. How do you think we could optimise our geographic advantages, particularly the space domain, for greater strategic effect? Yeah, I think there are two major things, and one of them is alike uh, with the United States, and one of them is very different. And uh, we put our main launch facility in Florida, and it's there because it faces the East Coast. You can launch rockets with the uh, turning of the Earth uh, in the and get that advantage, uh, and there aren't very many pieces of land below that. So you can put, SpaceX can put a a drone ship out there and capture the rocket body and bring it back very cheaply um, and uh, reuse it. Uh, You've got a large, very large eastward facing sea coast that, uh, and you also uh, have it uh, even better than Florida, you're closer to the, the equator, which gives a lot more advantage to getting into space as well. So I would imagine, you know, having a spaceport somewhere on the east coast, somewhere as far north as possible, but also near to some industrial facilities where you can develop a space uh, industry in that in that area, that would be a sort of a natural geographic sort of uh, um, advantage. Now, the other is that you're close to Antarctica. Now, Antarctica is interesting because uh, that's uh, everything in a polar orbit and a sun-synchronous orbit goes over Australia. So being able to pull data down from uh, Antarctica, push data up, being able to observe satellites uh, going over from that area because you're so close, that would be an advantage here. You can uh, maintain those those kind of space situational awareness capabilities there as well. Maybe a, uh, a fiber optic cable going to your Antarctic stations uh, to pull the data and push the data uh, would be a great investment uh, to uh, begin to develop that architecture. Another thing that I, when when you say it seems blindingly obvious to me, but I think so few people think about think about that aspect of our of our geography and and certainly of, of how important that is strategically. To circle back to where we started today, I know the U.S. military does take some novel approaches to stimulate out of the box, or if we're talking space, out of the spaceship thinking. You yourself are a science fiction writer. I've seen that um, USDOD uses some competitions to bring science fiction into, into strategy. How does science fiction help us in the world of military strategy to finish up? That's a great question. I think for a futurist and for people that think it, that uh, need to provide options for leaders, I think being able to challenge some of your assumptions through science fiction is one of the most important things. Now, again, when I talked earlier about that balance between credibility and inspiration, uh, you know, sometimes uh, people in the science fiction world have the inspiration dial, you know, almost, you know, torn off and turned up to 11, uh, which is good because then it'll, it makes, it challenges the people on the credible side of the equation to say, why not? Yeah. Um, and, and so I think uh, putting your ideas in paper, bringing them to life, also allows people that you're interacting with to really understand what it is you're seeing rather than the dry language of a a white paper or report. It brings those ideas to life. And with that, I'd like to really uh, sort of uh, shout out to Daniel Suarez, who wrote books like Delta V and his second book, Delta V, uh, the sequel to Delta V is coming out. And the whole idea about um, Delta V and the ability to change velocity being the key to the solar system was really the spark of inspiration for the brief that I gave uh, and the discussions that I've given about, uh, you know, the importance of space launch and the importance of reusability. And those are a couple of his books, but, uh, you know, lots of science fiction authors are out there that have 
put the kernel of an idea out there and then illustrated that idea of how the world could be um, that I think really are, are, is, is a critical to driving us into the futures that we want and not just futures that inertia give, give us. I really like that. I think there's there's something in that for all of us in terms of both going out and reading a little more and stimulating our own imaginations, that contribution in terms of of those people who work with the reality and who anchor in the credibility side of the of the piece, forcing forcing them to say, you know, why not? That's right. I think that's that's really important. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for your time today. I've really enjoyed this chat and having you uh, with us for a few days in Australia. Thank, thank you. you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. That's all we have time for today on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.